Have your copy of Scripture, Second uh, Thessalonians, the first chapter, and we're going to read verses eight and nine. <clears throat> and speaking of copy of Scripture, today we are emphasizing the Gideon's ministry. Uh, usually, we have done that in August, but COVID-19 threw everything off. And so on the, um, the pre-programmed uh, program that people are watching at 1030 now on Channel 19, we, I did an interview with David Reagan, who's one of the, the Gideons this morning at 815. We, we watched a wonderful video about the ministry of the Gideons. Of course, um, the Gideons give of their time to distribute copies of Scripture all over the world. And we help support the Gideons with a, an annual offering. So as you leave today, some of our Gideons are going to be at the doors. And um, if you didn't come prepared, then as you can go onto our website as church members go on to Mosaic, where you can get the, under the giving tab, uh, there's an other. And under other, you can type in Gideon, Gideons. Now, uh, some of you, I know in the room, are, uh, are Gideons and members of Gideon's Auxiliary. If you are, would you stand, please? I don't know if we've ever recognized our Gideons. Would you all stand? We want to thank you for what you do. They're good. Good work. Thank you. So thank you for your ministry of, um, of Scripture distribution. Remember, there'll be, some of them will be at the doors as we leave. In 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, beginning at verse 8, we'll read two verses. He, of course, our Creator, God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. And here's how. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. <clears throat> that second verse again, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. We're still in this series, Out of This World. Two weeks ago, we talked about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about death. Next Sunday, we'll talk about heaven. Today, it is my responsibility and a responsibility I take seriously to talk about hell. There's been a lot of commentary lately about polls and how accurate or inaccurate they are. But there's something that is consistent in the polls, and that is that, that hell is increasingly unpopular. And by unpopular, I mean that people believe in hell less and less. Every time it seems we take a poll, there's... There are fewer people who believe in hell. Now, heaven, on the other hand, remains a widely loved and popular idea. Hell, uh, not, not so much. Why is, it, why is it that more and more people dismiss uh, the notion of, of a hell? Well, we could blame it on the poem. We could blame it on Dante's Inferno. Remember, he, in the Middle Ages, wrote the Inferno, and the, the images, the illustrations in that poem uh, in the Middle Ages were frightening to people. But today, in a different time and culture, they seem rather cartoonish. And so instead of frightening people, those images make it easy for people to dismiss the notion of hell as just a bad fairy tale. Maybe it's the fault of the poem. Maybe it's the preachers, the preachers who have 
pointed their fingers in anger and have pounded their pulpits and waved their Bibles and seemed to get kind of excited, you know, about uh, the idea of hell. So why would more and more people dismiss the notion of hell? Maybe it's the poem, The Inferno. Maybe it's the preachers. Maybe it's postmodernism. That's the, a way of thinking that, that dismisses the idea of ultimate truth. Truth has been redefined so that truth is now really whatever you feel like truth is or I feel like truth is. And so it's, it's easy to, to dismiss the notion of hell. So maybe it's the poem. Maybe it's the preachers. Maybe it's postmodernism. But to be fair, there is a more understandable, not excusable, but understandable reason why more and more people are dismissing the idea. And that's this. It forces on us a tension, a, a hard tension. Because on the one hand, we have God who is loving and kind and fair, compassionate. And then on the other hand, there's the, this awful reality that he allows that causes great tension for us in our spirit. Some people talk about cognitive dissonance, this, these apparently conflicting ideas that we hold, and it's hard to hold both of them at the same time. And it's hard for us to hold both the idea of a loving God and an awful reality that he allows. And so for many, to kind of ease our consciences or ease the tension, we, we let go of this part of the tension and just hang on to the love of God. That is understandable. However, we can't just write off the notion. We can't just wish it away. We can't rip out of the Bible those pages that do speak of hell and just leave the ones that speak of eternal bliss in heaven. So I, I want us to have a an honest conversation, and I recognize this is a one-way conversation, but I want you to know that I'm going to really struggle to be, I've struggled in my preparation to do that well, and I'm going to struggle to to speak of this in, in ways that are not confusing and certainly that would not, I pray, not, not misleading. So I want to ask, why do, we, why do we believe, why do I believe there really is such a thing as a hell? Two, what might hell be like? And three, uh, who goes there? So number one, why is there really a hell? Why do I believe there is? Well, we would all agree, I'm sure, that there are a lot of bad things in the world. Crime, poverty, hatred, division, wars, abuse, a lot of bad things in the world. So to, to what do we attribute those bad things? What, are the, what is the source of all those bad things, the crime and the poverty and the abuse and the division and hatred and wars, all that? Well, some would say it's, it's mental illness. People act badly because they suffer some sort of mental illness. And it is true that there are some people who suffer with a mental illness who do bad things, but not all people, of course. The mental illness do, all, do bad things, and all bad things are not attributable to mental illness. But that's one, one option, one, excuse me, one suggestion. Uh, another is emotional pain, that people are in pain emotionally, that lots of people suffered traumatic childhoods, and so they have grown to be adults who hurt others, who do bad things. And that's true. Lots of people do act out of their own pain and, and inflict pain uh, on others. Uh, some would suggest it's mental illness. Some would suggest it's, um, uh, you know, this pain, the emotional pain. Uh, some would suggest it's ignorance, that people just don't know, don't know any better, and they simply need to be educated uh, to, to deal with things in a more positive way. 
Now, all those things are true. There is mental illness, and there is a lot of emotional pain, and, and there, is a lot, there are a lot of people who need to be taught better. But there are some things so bad. There are behaviors so awful that they cannot be explained away by mental illness or emotional pain or ignorance. There is a, a reality, an unseen but powerful reality called evil, evil with a capital E. Evil, the kind of evil that is behind such barbarities as the burning of Christians at the stake in the century after Jesus. Such atrocities as the Holocaust. Such terroristic activities as flying planes into the World Trade Center. Evil behind such things as self-absorbed greed that steps on people and turns a blind eye to those in need. Evil behind the, the perversion of sexuality so that children are abducted and trafficked and women are abused and used. There is such a thing that uh, beyond that which we can see and explain through psychology and sociology, there is such a thing as evil. Even my friend Craig Machen understands that. Craig and I met at a funeral several years ago. He lives in Los Angeles. He's a screenwriter. He is not a Christian. He would not understand the Bible in the same way that I do, or leave the Bible in the same that I, way that I do. He calls himself a spiritual free agent. But he was working on a documentary for MTV a few years ago in Plano, Texas. And the documentary had to do with the subculture of, of heroin and teenagers. So he spent a week in Plano in that subculture. Now remember, Craig is not a Christian. But this is what Craig said. I looked into their eyes and I thought, oh my God, these kids are possessed. For real. This might sound corny, he wrote, but the word Satan or devil jumped into my head and stayed there until long after I left. The energy I felt was tangible. And I will never forget it or make less of it. Craig is right. There is something real and powerful, evil with a capital E. And here's the deal. There is a headquarters, if you will, of, of evil and the evil one who goes by names such as Beelzebub and Lucifer and the devil and the evil one and the enemy, the accuser and Satan. There is, a, there is a place from which that all emanates, and that is hell. That's what Ephesians 6 is talking about when it says, Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And heavenly realms does not mean heaven. It means in the unseen world. There is a reality evil, and there is a headquarters, somewhere from which that all springs, and that is what the Bible calls hell. Two, and harder for me, what is hell like? What does the Bible say uh, in describing hell? Well, let's look at several. First, you've heard of Sheol and Hades. Sheol comes from the Old Testament. Its first cousin is Hades from the New Testament, meaning the place of the dead. 
But Sheol and Hades don't give us a lot of clarity if we want to figure out what hell is like. So we know that they refer in these rather foggy terms to the place of the dead, but they don't help us a lot. The image that comes to mind for most of us probably, the first image is fire or lake of fire. And the truth is that is, a, that is mentioned enough in the New Testament that we have to take that seriously. Eight times if I'm counting right. So we have to take that image seriously. There is at least one indication that we're to take that figuratively. For example, in, in Jude, in verse 9, there's only one chapter in Jude, but in verse 7, he speaks of fire. Verse 13, talking about hell. In verse 13, six verses later, he speaks of complete blackness or darkness. So in the same paragraph, there's the image of light giving fire and the image of darkness. So maybe these are God-given symbols, images uh, for something so awful we just don't have vocabularies and categories for it. So, so the first, you know, you've got Sheol and Hades, not a lot of clarity there. Then there's the image of, of fire. Another image common in the New Testament is annihilation or simply ceasing to be. There's several. Let's look at three. Romans 6.23, the wages or consequences of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So on the one hand you have death, on the other hand you have life. So what a lot of biblical scholars would suggest, what if, we were, what if we're supposed to take that word death seriously or even literally? Now we tend to spiritualize it, but what if it really is talking about ongoing life and death or annihilation. John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So what if perish is annihilation? A lot of Bible scholars would suggest we consider. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. What if destruction means, well, Destruction. So there are biblical scholars who would suggest that, that hell is annihilation, that at death, those who continue to live are those whose hope is in Jesus, and others simply cease to be. So you've got Sheol and Hades, and you've got fire, and you've got annihilation. Here's another image from the New Testament. That is, that it's worse for some than for others. Jesus, in Matthew 11, said, it, now you have to pay attention to the names of these towns. Jesus said, on Judgment Day, it will be worse for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum than for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. He said it will be worse for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That's that region in Galilee where Jesus spent a lot of his time. His adopted hometown was Capernaum. So in this, this tri-city area, Jesus lived and worked and walked and healed. And he said on, on Judgment Day, it's going to be worse for them than for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom because he said if the mighty works done over here had been done over here, then they would have repented. He said it will be worse for them, giving us some indication then that, that it's different, that maybe the, the greater the opportunity, the heavier the responsibility, maybe. Hades and Sheol, fire, annihilation, worse for 
some than others. And then, and then Jesus, the image that Jesus used was Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is a valley just outside the old walls or the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, the western walls. Gehenna, in that valley, is within a stone's throw of a chic shopping mall. It is a place where families go for picnics and outdoor movies and fireworks and concerts. But in Jesus' day, it was not a place for concerts and outdoor movies. It was the garbage dump and and there, the, the carcasses of animals and the, the unclaimed bodies of criminals that had been executed and human waste were all thrown there. And, and there's a fire going and the unfortunate attendants had to keep the fire going so that uh, the, the pile would not get too high. And that's, that's the word that Jesus used, Gehenna, in, in speaking of hell. So you've got Sheol and Hades and and fire, and annihilation, and another one. Oh, it's worse for some than for others, and then Jesus says Gehenna. But here's the one that, with all, I'm not sure about all those varying images. I don't know what, I, I don't know. But this I do know. And it comes from the verses we read a moment ago. Hell is eternal separation from God. We read they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. What grim, severe, sobering words. Whatever you think about the other images. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you all know her, uh, the, the uh, paraplegic, the lady who's been in a wheelchair for decades now, powerful writer, said this. Now, I don't usually read long quotes, so pay careful attention. What is hell like, she asks, fire and brimstone, a black hole? A bleak nothingness? Again, the, the devil shrugs his shoulders at such descriptions. All that matters to him is that hell is separation, total and final from God. The devil wants to take as many with him to hell as he possibly can, and that includes you. I don't know how to interpret all the varying images of hell, but I do know that there is nothing that I could imagine more severe, more frightening than to be separated from the one from which all good things come. So... Is there a hell? I believe there is. I believe that's the headquarters of evil. What is hell like? We, there are lots of images, varying images, frankly, in the New Testament. But the one, clear, the one thing about which we have clarity is that it is separation from God. Third question, who goes? There are lots of people who would say there has to be a hell for people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Saddam Hussein but not for just normal people. But what if that's not true? If, if hell is not just for the worst of the worst, who goes? C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, uh, you hear lots of preachers quote that brilliant British, late British the, uh, writer. He wrote, there are only two kinds of people in, in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those people to whom God says, your will be done. All that are in hell, he said, choose it. Harold O.J. Brown called hell the enduring monument to the freedom of human will. The enduring monument to the freedom of human will. Dallas Willard wrote, and, and, and I thank you for paying attention to these quotes. 
Their orientation, people in hell, their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they are suited. It is a place they would in the end choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who He is. So those guys say that that it's a choice. And here's why I think they're right. Because the Bible's clear about free will, that we have, that God grants to us the freedom to make choices about our spirituality and then to experience the consequences of those choices. And in Romans 1, it may be the most, most haunting phrase in all the Bible, three times, God gave them over, He has wooed them, He has called them, and He gives them over. Hell might be the ultimate God gave them over. These three guys say, and I think they're right, that people make that choice. But Travis, nobody would choose hell. Well, humans make odd choices. Mark 5, the story of the demoniac, the man possessed by demons in the country of the Gadarenes. Jesus, over here in his adopted hometown of Capernaum, they got in the boat, he and his friends, they sailed to the other side, which means more than geography. It means this is a whole other culture over here. And when they landed in the country of the Gadarenes, they were met immediately by this wild and crazy guy, self-mutilated guy, possessed by demons, more than mental illness, more than emotional pain, he's possessed by demons. Jesus meets him where he is, and he transforms him. He delivers him, and this guy is radically changed. He was such a danger to people, so frightening to people. They wouldn't let him live. The townspeople would not let him live in the city limits. He had to live out there in the cemetery. But then, when Jesus changed him, rumor began to spread that this guy, something had happened to him, and the townspeople came to see, was it true? And when they got there, there sat this guy, as calm as a toad in the sun. And, and you'd think they would have said, Jesus would you stay and do some more of this? But verse 17 in Mark 5, I think is one of the oddest verses in all the Bible. Mark 5, 17 says, they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. Is that not odd? Humans make odd choices, do we not? They pleaded with Jesus, go away. Humans make odd choices, people are told by the physician. If you don't stop smoking, you will die. And they choose on the way home from the doctor to stop at 7-Eleven and buy a carton of cigarettes. People are told things won't make you happy, but we still run up credit card bills we can't pay and buy houses we can't afford. And then we have to take sleeping bills for our insomnia. And then we drink too much to deaden our anxiety. And Humans make odd choices. And people are told Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and yet we choose, some of us do, to go our own way and to invent our own truth and to live a life that invent, allows us in the end to say with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. I believe God will not impose himself on anyone in this world or the next and will excuse from His presence all who so choose. And humans make odd choices sometimes. 
There's a book with an interesting title, title, Whatever Happened to Hell? On the last page, the British author John Blanchard tells of December 11, 1984, and I looked it up on the interweb to make sure he was telling the truth, and he is. On December 11, 1984, on a road just south of London in a township called Surrey, this thick, blinding fog enveloped the road. And um, there was a large truck uh, carrying paper goods that crashed in the blinding fog. And there came from the other direction a car driving into the blinding fog, going too fast, and didn't see the, because visibility was so poor, didn't see the truck and crashed into it. And then there came another car driving too fast into the blinding fog, didn't see the wreck, plowed into them. Car after car. When it was all over, 11 people were dead and dozens were taken to the hospital. But before the police could arrive, those who saw what was happening tried to, tried to warn people. So they ran up the road in the direction from which the cars were coming, and they, they waved their arms, and, and Blanchard said they picked up cones, traffic cones, and they threw them out in the road, but people either didn't see or didn't care, and they, and they kept plowing. And one of them said, and I'm quoting from the book now, one told later how tears streamed down his face as car after car went by, and he waited for the sickening sound of impact as they hit, now get this phrase, the growing mass of wreckage further down the road. And I have never heard a more fitting description of hell than that. The growing mass of wreckage further down the road. And so we read, God will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. So two obvious questions. Do you know God? Not do you know He is, but do you know Him? Have you obeyed the gospel in a nutshell? Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected so that you could be saved for the best life possible on this earth and life that never ends in heaven. Have you submitted all that you have and all that you are to that good news? Friends, you are deeply loved by God. Don't choose to be part of the growing mass of wreckage further down the road.